giant robot smashing into other giant robots. This is the Giant Robots Smashing into Other Giant Robots podcast, where we explore the design, development, and business of great products. I'm your host, Chad Pytel, and with us today is Rob Zuber, CTO of CircleCI. Rob, thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Rob, you joined Circle CI in 2014, right? That's correct, yeah. And Circle started in 2011. That's right. Late 2011 and sort of launched the very first offering at the beginning of 2012. Mm-hmm. So at what stage was the company and the team at when you joined? Yeah, things were pretty different then. Um, it was it was an exciting time, as all small companies are. Circle CI had just raised an A sort of earlier in that year, a Series A, and I was working with two other folks building a um, an iOS CI and CD solution. It was called Distiller, and Circle CI was about eighteen or twenty people. I can't quite remember, but in that range, mm-hmm. uh, almost entirely engineering. You know, had very good product market fit. People have loved the product almost since the day it was launched and a pretty solid customer list, honestly, for, um, you know, for a company of that size. And as I said, we were building iOS specific. We were focused on mobile, but we had taken on and conquered the iOS CI CD problem, but realized that there was a lot more to CI and CD than just doing the mobile app. Most of our customers that we were talking to were asking us, okay, this is cool, but how do we do the backend piece of this, you know, we have an iOS app, but it's talking to some Rails structure or a, a Node app or something like that. And when we realized that our answer was always, we hear Circle CI is pretty good. Maybe you should use that for your mm-hmm. backend systems. That maybe, um, you know, maybe there was a possibility to work together. Uh, and that's how the, the three of us uh, actually ended up here. That's really funny because ThoughtBot's a Circle CI customer. Mm-hmm. And we didn't always use Circle CI. We used other things, but then the iOS support of Circle <laughs> was what right. ultimately was the gateway for us to say, you know what, we're just going to use Circle for everything. But it was we first got started with Circle from the iOS support. Cool. Well, I, I think it's worked both ways. Right. Um, you know, I, I often tell this story, and of course, like. I can lay claim to some iOS lineage, but if you look at the iOS product that we have now, I can't really claim any great responsibility for, you know, for everything in that offering. But, you know, we had a a few customers, we were sort of just getting started actually on this distiller platform. Uh, We were pretty early. And just by being at CircleCI, as we launched the offering within CircleCI, the access that we had to customers who had had been asking for it for a long time coming the other direction, right? Like we do all of our other CI with you. How can we do iOS? Uh, We just had, we had an opportunity to take the knowledge that we had brought and the the pieces we had built and just expose them to so many more people so quickly because CircleCI had just reached much greater scale at that point, but it really was beneficial in both directions. So as you said, we, we brought some people in and then we, we sort of brought more people in over time by having iOS added to the, to the CircleCI offering. So speaking a little bit more generically, you know, people, when they're working on a product, your customers tell you things all the time about like, Mm -hmm. oh, we'd love this, or we want this, or we won't use this until we have this. How do you separate and make sure that you're doing the things that actually will make a difference to your business? 
Uh, from an overall product direction perspective? Yeah. It's interesting. I think um, one of the interesting things about building developer tools, actually, and now I'm going to go all the way back to sort of those early days as mm-hmm. well, but I'll try to bring it forward, is, uh, and you asked about the stage and structure of the of the company at the time, it was very much engineering. And from a developer tools perspective, a notion that, hey, we're, we're building a product that solves our problem. So we understand the problem and the full extent of that problem, Right. And I think that's actually a risk that companies run into in this space, mm-hmm. which is I am a software developer. I'm building a tool for software developers. Therefore, I understand the needs of those software developers. But as I'm sure you know, and as it turns out, there are a lot of different ways of building software, right? right. And a lot of different opinions about how your software delivery should work and what your, you know, how your pipeline should function, what that should look like. And so it was soon after we joined, I I don't really remember the dates anymore, but we hired our first product manager and started to think about pulling together a broader perspective of who our potential customers might be. Also, around the time that I joined, I would say the majority of our customers were sort of forward thinking, you know, early startups um, who knew they wanted to have CI and CD. I mean, Rails monoliths were like the standard uh, around 2012. And one thing you can definitely say about the Rails community is there was a lot of focus on automated testing, good structure around testing, that sort of thing. And so that really drove the product. But as our existing customers have grown, honestly, because many of them are still with us from those very, very early days, and as we've reached more of the market, we've realized how diverse software development really is and things that, you know, from our perspective as sort of leading edge thinking about CI and CD don't feel like they make a ton of sense, but are absolutely necessary. And, you know, as you start to talk to public organizations, large financial institutions, there are pieces of that puzzle that are absolutely critical to how they deliver software that don't really feel like the way that we would deliver software. But we recognize that now. And and so putting in place a, a product organization, spending a lot of time with our customers, looking at both what people are asking for today, but also where we see the market moving. Because at some point, you know, we realized that we could make an investment down a path, but most people are moving away from that. So we have to have a little bit of, you know, where are we interested in capturing folks where they're at today? And where do we see them headed so that we'll be aligning in the future? It's a tough balance, but it really is the role of, of product management in our organization. Obviously, as a as a CTO, I also, I don't know if this is obvious for all CTOs, but personally as a CTO, I spend time with customers and users out in the field and kind of get their feedback, but also talking to other, you know, people like me who maybe aren't our customers, but are in similar technical leadership roles at other orgs and trying to understand where they think the market is heading so we can align again where we're trying to drive the product in the future with where we see the market going in the future. Does that make sense? It does. Different companies are organized differently is product and product management under engineering and reporting to you or is there a separate product part of the the organization at circle ci yeah so we have a a a head of product a vp product Mm -hmm. management who reports directly to our ceo Mm -hmm. um our ceo jim rose is actually my partner from distiller so we we joined um circle ci at the same time and we had worked together for three years three and a half years before that so we've we've known each other a very long time and and Jim is actually an amazing product thinker himself. And so I think that's a, a really good relationship and, and then gives us the opportunity to have, I would say, the, the right level of, I, I'm, I'm trying to use tension in the best possible way, mm-hmm. but like, you know, like some creative tension between those, like 
those two organizations of product really understanding uh, the customer and bringing that perspective and sort of looking at the market and then engineering also being part of the market, which is very interesting again in this dynamic, but bringing the perspective of, you know, okay, we understand the problem that you're trying to solve. Here are some ways that we think about solving it and really like bringing those two perspectives together in a way that's, that's creative and helpful and drives us to the best solution. So when you joined in 2014 and came on as CTO, what was the biggest technical challenge that you saw or or just any challenge in general in terms of what was your first focus coming on for clarity i actually didn't join as cto oh we basically joined there were three of us uh, myself and another engineer and then and then jim who has more of a product and business background we joined the company a little unclear to be totally honest about what roles we were going to play. I came in and implemented iOS. So I basically was a, a software engineer and a team of software engineers, worked with some of the other engineers on the team who understood the CircleCI portion of the stack better. Basically, we we didn't just try to integrate our product. We took everything we learned and, and merged mm-hmm. it into the product, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. So the first thing I did was just that. I sat at a desk and wrote code for you know three or four months. But in that time frame started to realize that you know one of the first challenges and, and getting back to your question was helping the team I guess organize themselves a little better around their work it was pretty flat again small team a lot of engineers and really trying to help sort of focus and prioritize people's work so I moved from sort of being an engineer to a VP of engineering role and then probably another year after that, again, I don't remember all the dates, hired a VP of engineering and moved into a CTO role. So the first portions of that in terms of interesting challenge to solve were building the organization to, to be able to scale from where it was, organizing work a little bit better. And then, as I said, we brought in some product management. And so that changed the way that we thought about organizing work as well. And then I would say probably a year out from that, we started to hit some scaling challenges from a product or or like a infrastructure perspective, the way the product was implemented as we continued to grow our user base. And then I started to shift my energy into working with the engineering team to, to try to solve some of those challenges. Yeah. So how was the product implemented back then? So unsurprisingly, we had very much a monolith. I think there's varying degrees of monoliths. I think pretty much everything we did was in one single code base. CircleCI has been a closure shop since the beginning, which is more surprising than having a monolith, I would say. <laughs> For those who don't know, Clojure is a Lisp that runs on the JVM. To this day, I would say you know, it's gaining some popularity, but it's certainly not amongst your top five languages that you'll find out there to build things. And we had, uh, again, this monolithic infrastructure that sort of really did everything from executing builds within, we were using LXC containers uh, because Docker wasn't even really a thing when CircleCI started, uh, but using that as an isolation mechanism, driving much of the build out of that monolith, as well as you know serving the website and, and responding to queries for information, all that sort of stuff. And it was very early, running on a few machines, over time, scaling to many, many, many machines. And many of the operations that were being performed were still acting as if there were only a few machines. Mm -hmm. So we started, some of those challenges we were running into were around contention as more and more instances of the same code, basically all thought they should have ownership, all sitting on top of a single database, which was Mongo. So how did you start to pull apart that problem and develop a plan forward? 
It came in a few phases for sure. Um, I think anyone who's hitting scaling limits at the rate that we were hitting them doesn't stop to develop a plan, Mm -hmm. but rather does some very reactive, you know, how are we going to get through tomorrow and not have the thing that happened today happen again? And we had one one major incident in 2015, I think, where I, I recall the entire engineering organization submitting changes to the code base at a, a what would be considered an alarming rate, I would say, mm-hmm. under any other circumstances. I mean, with, with review and distribution, all of those things, but a lot of people on a little bit of sleep, you know, trying to make some pretty significant changes to how things operated. And that mm-hmm. was just operations that up until that point felt lightweight. But once you started to see millions of them, you realize they weren't that light. The next thing we did was sort of take our monolith and deploy it in different roles. I think I stole that word roles from how someone explained to me that Exchange works. I don't, probably not a lot of people spend a lot of time on Microsoft Exchange these days, but apparently that was a thing. So you would take the same code base, basically pass it some startup parameters. And so now one instance knew it was only responsible for a subset of work and another one knew it was responsible for a different subset of work. Like for example, serving the web front end versus running built jobs. Exactly. And one of the key things in there was the process by which we determined where the build should be run, because every instance of the monolith trying to decide or trying to take the build and run it itself and then finding out that someone else had taken it was was a key sort of limiting factor, created a lot of thrash. So having just a couple instances basically take responsibility for that and then give those jobs to other instances versus each one trying to fight for themselves. Uh, was a huge uh, scaling improvement. Well, at that time, were you getting pressure between the biz- the needs of the business and what was going on with the product and scaling at that time? Like we need to deliver net new capabilities sort of perspective? Y- yeah, yeah. One thing that is probably, I don't know if you can be extra double-edged as a sword, that doesn't sound like a very good <laughs> analogy, but but one thing that is very true about being in our space, being in like a critical component of the software delivery pipeline is the first step in your business is reliability. And I want to call it performance, but we think about performance in terms of the rate at which we move your build through the platform Mm -hmm. more than anything else, right? So having capacity available, receiving the request for your work to be executed and executing it as quickly as possible. I mean, we, we, we think about that a lot more than we think about you know, hand unrolling loops and stuff like that. Like the actual, it's not down to nanoseconds in very tight code loops, but rather the rate at which we're able to take your work and get it through the system. That is the core of our business. And everyone understands that in our business. And then everything else is really in addition, right? So the point where we're having challenges keeping things running effectively for people, we're all very clear about what the priority is there. Mm -hmm. And that makes it much easier for us to, work within the business or work with the, the business side or whatever you want to call it. And of course, now we're a much larger organization that has a very significant, you know, sales, marketing, sort of go-to-market side of the house or whatever you want to call it. I'm, try, I'm trying not to dis- distinguish too much. We all talk to each other and, it, and like each other, but we have different perspectives and objectives. We still have that clarity around priority and, and direction. I will say if it sustains for a long time, right? If we have significant issues for a long time or or frustration or challenges, whatever. Um, But I think there's that real clarity that if something comes up from a a stability or or reliability perspective or scale, you know, as we're growing, that that's our first priority. 
we'll work on that and then we will go back to you know driving forward with our product direction and all those other things okay cool so you were proceeding with establishing roles within the one code base and then what'd you do from there yeah so that bought us some breathing room which is usually the first step in the operation right get yourself enough headway that your customers are happy that you can sleep and then you can start thinking about the longer term direction Uh, and that was really the beginning of what is now our 2.0 offering it's an interesting thing to try to talk about what was a significant re-architecture both from a customer perspective underneath the sort of top layers like the actual execution of our builds like top to bottom we changed a lot of things because there were advantages across the board so we knew we had challenges around continuing to grow the platform as it was structured but we also knew that software development was changing right i mean i mentioned doing things pre-docker and so we were still trying to execute docker builds inside of lxc containers and it was not easy. And then Docker changed the way that it was implemented in a way that we couldn't even really support inside of LXC anymore. And so we were, you know, the, the market was kind of shifting in a direction that we were struggling to follow by continuing down the same path. And in conjunction with that, our implementation from a more architectural view was also gating us, right? This large kind of distributed monolith thing. And so we sat down to think about how we could solve multiple problems at the same time, which is one of my least favorite activities. I think (laughs) when you have, when you have contention over what the driving priority is, you know, you often end up in a place where you solve each of them a bit and none of them really well. Somehow we got lucky, I guess, and (laughs) stayed on top of it and, and solved a lot. I mean, the, the sort of changing the way that software gets developed is a theme and will be a theme for the rest of eternity. So that's a thing that we were less concerned about, like let's solve the problem for developers today and more concerned about how do we build a system that we can more easily evolve as software development approaches evolve, right? Mm -hmm. So that was a slightly different problem, but still a problem to tackle. And then how do we do this in a way where we believe more in the scalability of the solution. And so to focus on the the latter for a second, the scalability of the solution, one key thing that we did, we were very concerned about just dropping in a brand new implementation. We knew we were going to do some things in order to get to the scale that we wanted. We were going to have to break some things about our interface, which is basically the config that you pass to the system. Mm -hmm. And so we wanted to be able to introduce that in an incremental manner. So we focused a lot on how we split the routing of a job through our system such that most of our customers could still be on what we have subsequently started calling 1.0. No one really calls their thing, well, at least at (laughs) at this scale, not you don't call it 1.0 until you make the next one, right? Right. So we started focusing on how we could split just a small amount of traffic off that. We started with our own builds. So we were running our own stuff through this new platform before it ever saw any customer builds. Got it to a point where it was stable, we were comfortable, we were still changing the interface. Then we contacted some people. Um, again, we have a pretty large customer base to draw on, so it's nice to be able to, you know, alpha and beta without doing big public announcements. So we could make sure that we had customers that really understood what we were trying to do and that it was going to be a little bit jumpy. And they could even put one branch, you know, routing through the new platform without disturbing their their core workflow. Again, sitting in the the core delivery workflow of someone else's job 
job as in the work they do every day, not job as in a job within a workflow. But when you're that important to someone else's work, dropping in your alpha changes just to see how it goes, it's not really going to win you a lot of favor. Um, So really giving people the opportunity to help us out, but keeping it safe for them. And then slowly scaling that up to the point where we could be comfortable at each step because we knew we were making a big investment. Of course, we wanted to get it out there. But at the same time, we knew how big of a change this was, and it would be hard to make another big change like that. So really trying to balance that. Mm -hmm. It's a weird way of being iterative while doing a massive, significant breaking change. So if you would describe 1.0 as a monolithic closure app running the builds in LXC containers and with some roles attached for scaling, how would Mm -hmm. you describe 2.0? Well, this is an interesting thing that I, I think we even struggle to all get our heads around internally, which is a huge part of the 2.0 overall infrastructure still includes a significant part of that monolith, right? And I Mm -hmm. think I make this joke all the time that a microservices architecture is like five microservices in a monolith. Like everybody still has that because you can't just blow it apart and have a successfully running system the next day, right? So now we do have a decent sized collection of services that have taken on parts of the system. And we started our transition to services with the infrastructure that was running the builds, right? So at the time that we first started doing this transition, we're still running all of our web traffic through instances of the monolith, basically. Um, And for the most part, we still are now. I mean, the way that it does that is a little bit different in the things it's talking to, but it's still that same kind of structure. And then slowly evolving a set of services beneath that that are responsible for different pieces of the work. And so while the the change from 1.0 to 2.0 is really a change in the build engine versus a change of our entire infrastructure. Again, because we were trying to do that in an iterative way that was a little safer than, than yep. some other options. So simultaneously, we've also pulled out some services, some in service of actually doing this build execution, others just because we had started to develop some patterns that we liked. Uh, we still use closure in a large number of areas. I mean, in pulling out services, often you're taking stuff that you had in your monolith and pulling it out. So, you know, doing something completely different didn't really feel like a great idea. But we do, we implemented or introduced um, Go in a few interesting areas. In particular, we moved to a model where we have an agent running inside the container that's executing your build. And that container, the image behind that container, can be introduced by you, the customer, right? So we needed an agent that could run in almost an unknown environment, could be pushed into that environment over a network very quickly and would start up quickly and, and execute. And if you have any experience with Clojure, you would, you would know that it fails basically on all of those dimensions. <laughs> and so a, you know, a statically compiled binary feels like the right thing, especially one that you can make quite small. So we use Go there as well as in a couple other, oh, we've, we have some CLI capabilities that we introduced, again, similar kind of scenario where, you know, you're starting up executing a single command and shutting down and you might distribute it to, again, to different client environments, right, as a, as a customer of ours. So uh, there's a few places that we've introduced Go and a, a couple other places within our infrastructure where we've shifted that in a couple services where it feels right. But we're still using a decent amount of closure, just more in services, Um, we've shifted how we think about the data store. So I mentioned earlier, you know, many instances of a monolith, so they're all talking to the same data store. Now we have sort of a a database per service, isolating those things a little bit. Um, 
there was one other thing I was going to mention, which is we took a job scheduler off the shelf because it turns out in 20, even by 2015, 2016, when we were really driving at this project, we were not the smartest people building a job scheduler. And in fact, many people had done some really great things about job scheduling and were spending their entire days on that problem. Whereas it was something we did on the side because we needed to put jobs on our platform. And so we really took a, a deep look at, honestly, every piece of our monolith of all the parts of code that were in there and said, which of these are actually being done better by someone else right now, where we could leverage that and focus on the things that really differentiate us. And so which job scheduler did you use? So we use HashiCorp Nomad to Mm -hmm. schedule the work within our platform, meaning the arbitrary jobs that are given to us by our customers, which is different from how we schedule our services for which we use Kubernetes, which feels like kind of the de facto standard at this point. Mm -hmm. We see them as very different roles and the behaviors and characteristics that we require are very different. You can tell we get asked this question a lot, like why have two, but they do very different things and they each do the thing that they do very well, but didn't see them doing the other job very well. So it, it strikes me that a lot of, you know, what you've gone through at CircleCI and in evolving and scaling your product is the same thing that a lot of your customers go through eventually. Absolutely. Are you seeing that in what your customers need out of continuous integration and how it's changing? And for example, if you have a monolithic application, it's one thing, you're going to have one build. You might have multiple builds of that occurring if your team is working on different branches of it, but it is one setup. And that changes if you have a bunch of services, you're going to have a bunch of different projects in your CI dashboard, for example. Yeah, exactly. So I think there's a couple of places. I mean, you definitely get smaller, simpler builds in theory in a service, right? Uh, Or in a services architecture, uh, because each one is smaller. But then the I think what we're all learning, probably some of us sooner than others, but we're all going to learn this at some point if we haven't already, is that we've just changed the complexity. We haven't really eliminated it, right? Like working inside of a monolith can be complex, especially when you are a bit loose with the boundaries, let's say, Mm -hmm. uh, which is one one of the great challenges in a monolith. And so you can create clear boundaries in a services environment, but first you have to be very thoughtful about where those boundaries are going to be, you know, really understand your domain, understand your, how you're trying to break it down. I think one of the things that we see, and I would say I know this more as someone who's done it than as someone who's watched our customers do it, is in other platforms, I've moved too early to a services-based architecture yep. and learned that the services weren't partitioned in the right way to match the needs of the domain. And now I just had a bunch of complexity and a lot of network calls to try to build a really simple response, uh, which is not a great outcome. So really understanding your business, understanding where the right point is to start making some of these transitions. And then the way that we actually build and deploy, you know, the introduction of Docker, the sort of drive towards containerized service deployments, using Kubernetes as a means to orchestrate all of those services. We see a lot of these patterns evolving across many of our customers. We have a pretty broad spectrum of customers, so it's not all of them, but we do also, we see it a lot. Um, And so needing to support that piece of the model in terms of not just the testing of the software, but how it gets packaged, validating the packaging, being able to push out those images, et cetera. And then finally, I think the piece of the puzzle that everyone's trying to figure out right now is that introduced complexity. How do I then validate that, right? So I've taken 
what was in hindsight a simple build because I had this monolith and I could test everything internally, blown it apart into multiple different services. And what is the right investment to make in terms of trying to build up a full environment with all of those services and simulate everything that's going to happen in production environment versus building infrastructure correctly around how I deploy that allows me to safely catch anything that was missed in the test process in a way that's not going to have a significant cost or impact on my customers. I'm sure you've figured this all out, right? So you can share it with us today. (laughs) That's exactly right. Uh, I mean... No, I don't think that anybody has it all figured out. I think that there's there's a really interesting mindset that I am seeing evolve. And I, I've had sort of enlightening moments around everything from security to, you know, just bugs to scaling issues, where ultimately, at some point, you're going to miss something. And so building your system in a way that it is resilient to that feels like it's inevitable, At some point, you want to get to that state where it's the whole concept of resilience or chaos engineering, right? Where if I completely yank something out of this system, it's it's going to keep going. When you get to that point, then you have this interesting cost question, which is, is it actually better for my customers, better for the business, and better for, for everyone if I catch more of those problems in that production environment because I've built all the tooling to do that safely versus building something extremely complex to try to guess all of the possible failure modes inside of my testing, staging, whatever the classic deployment um, stages are, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think people hear this expression, test in production, and it freaks everyone out because it used to be a joke, right? Like, I'm just going to ship, like, I'm going to YOLO this code into production and see what happens. And that's certainly, like, I think we've taken back the terminology and reshaped it a little bit to be about being resilient to the point where it's actually okay to have something get through, which is not to advocate for everything getting through, but to be prepared and then to have a sane, useful cost conversation just from a pure engineering perspective. Where is my time best spent? What is the return on investment of these different activities? The thing that I think comes with that is when you think about building individual services, you want to make sure that you've maximized the testability of a standalone service, Mm -hmm. right? So we have situations and I see situations with many other developers where it's really three different services that all have to be interacting for me to figure out if something is working properly. And that's where it gets hard, right? So if you can really think again about the domain, about the breakdown of your services in a way that allows you to effectively within a unit testing scenario or maybe integration, just meaning your service and the database, be able to test the majority of the functionality such that the things that you're missing are just the serialization, you know, how things get in and out of the service, then you'll be in a much better place than if really, you know, you're saying, I don't know, I can't test any of this functionality before I have it integrated with 15 other services, then things are going to be very, very scary in your production environment. And to your point, you can end up in a scenario where you're doing services from the start and you haven't gotten the boundaries right. That's only going to make that more likely that in order to actually test any one of your services, you need three of the other services to be available to that service. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, And so I remain 
because I haven't seen a uh, I haven't seen a services from the start system go well. Mm-hmm. I remain in the camp of build the simple thing, figure out if you have a business, you know, you're going to have four pivots over that process, be in a position to move quickly, find the business, and then as you start to grow and you really get to a place where where this becomes necessary, you should understand your business well enough that you can make smart decisions. Again, I haven't seen great successes or don't, I I would love to hear about them. You know, people who knew their business out of the gate (laughs) and were able to build this perfectly, but you definitely have more flexibility when you've really had the opportunity to, to grow with the business, see the pains, see where things work, see the customers, how the customer uses your system, which is something you can't predict out of the gate. I'm pretty sure. Yeah. And then be able to adapt to it. Well, I'm glad I had you on the show because I think the same thing. That's what we've what we've learned over the years. I think the cool. the one thing that we can identify where if you look at something you're building a new feature or whatever and it really is just completely isolated in terms of functionality and then also if there's clearly a better tool set that is not your application or is not what your application is written in that would be better suited to solve this job. Mm-hmm. And it can really be like a job that's completely isolated. That's what we did at ThoughtBot. We had a service we were building and we needed to do diff parsing. And it turns out that there's a few services that GitHub has as well. And diff parsing is my understanding is one of them where, you know, it's a completely isolated thing of being able to take something and generate a diff of it. And there's better tooling options for that, but it's a very, it's a very isolated thing. And something like that, you know, works to create in a service. Yeah. In a, a totally random anecdote, in a previous company, we were building a Rails monolith and we did a bunch of image conversion mm-hmm. uh, for you know thumbnails and avatars and, and stuff like that. And um, we used image magic because we were using Rails and that was the thing that you could get a gem for and sort of shell out to. Yep. I more recently was doing some kind of a cool security uh, capture the flag kind of thing. And um, Image magic was one of the things that we learned how to hack. And I have nightmares now. Luckily, that service (laughs) is shut down, so I don't have to worry about it now. But there are great tools actually in other languages that I'm familiar with that are not based on image magic and would have been a great option for that if we had been thinking in that way. Less, let's break down the whole domain, but more to your point, like I just need to convert an image or do something with this diff, whatever. That's easily, easily farmed out. And I think as you start to evolve services of your own, actually one of our first here at CircleCI, looking for those kinds of opportunities, um, we have something that just processes JUnit formatted output and gives us back what we need in order to present it to our users and calculate timings and stuff like that. It's very simple because it doesn't require knowledge of you know, who the user is and their pricing plan and all these other kinds of things. It's literally just take this piece of information, convert it to this piece. Um, and it allowed us to push it out into some async processing, processing and scale it appropriately. You know, solving those sorts of problems are probably some of the first where you, you have lower risk, right, mm-hmm. about understanding your domain really effectively. We know we're going to do that thing for a long time to come. And it's less about how you know, organizations are tied to their users, which are tied to their plans and those sorts of things, which, which you really need to think through. So what's next on the horizon for Circle CI? What's the next challenge that you're looking as CTO to solve or what's looming out there for you? Yeah. So there's a couple things that are really interesting to us right now. We have long been what I would call a, a product offering. And by that, I mean, we, we will solve your problem for you. You, I, you asked earlier about understanding what 
what our customers want and deciding which things to focus on, that sort of thing. Our customers are software developers. And so really trying to put back in the hands of our customers the ability to, to solve their problems on top of our platform. So we launched at the end of last year or middle of last year, something called Orbs, which is a package manager effectively for config and creates the opportunity for people to create small packages of config that perform certain tasks and then share those with others. That's had a big impact for us in terms of both simplifying the work that our customers have to do, but also getting more out of our customer base. I mean, they're like I said, they're software developers. They love to solve problems. We just need to give them the right tools to solve those problems on their own, right? So there are, there are core pieces that we will always be building, but building a great core and giving our customers the ability to then build on top of that to solve their challenges is a big part of where we're focusing. So that's, that's one main area. I was talking about just the visibility we have into the different types of software development. I, mm-hmm. I don't really have a, a great word for those classifications, but just the different ways in which software developers um, work. And as a result, what's always been very cool for me about sitting where we are is that we do have visibility into that. We see how the world is changing and evolving in terms of software development, and we see the broad spectrum. And so being able to feed that back to our customers, in a sense, um, in terms of this is what we're seeing happen, and this is where we think you are doing a really great job. This is where maybe you you could look at how some other people are working in order to try to improve your process. Like Ultimately, I think about us not as a tool that does CI and CD, of course we are that, but as a team, as a company that wants everyone to have a better experience and be better at software development, right? So everything that we can learn from everything that we see, if we can take that and give it back to our customers in terms of, you could take the simplest thing, uh, which is these tests are running slow. These ones are flaky. Maybe you should go fix them and you can save yourself some time through to here are things that we know are broken in the ecosystem right now. I mean, we, Mm -hmm. we see, we know, we know when core pieces of people's (laughs) build infrastructure are broken that aren't ours, right? Mm -hmm. Whether they're like, package repositories or version control systems, whatever, when there are issues, we have the ability to then say to a customer, you know what, don't spend your next four hours trying to figure out why this is broken because it's not your fault. I mean, who hasn't spent a day debugging a build because it was some other system was broken and just the error wasn't quite clear, right? So to be able to really help our customers spend more and more of their time delivering effectively and less of their time sort of futzing with the kind of flaky bits is a big part of where I'd like to see us go. I have an example from an app that I work on, and it's not, it doesn't make me proud to say, but one of the apps that we work on, we know has time zone issues in it. And Mm -hmm. so the tests fail if the build happens to run close to midnight, because things that are being created in this spec suite are for an hour or two from now are in a different day. And so they don't mm-hmm. show up on pages and stuff that we expect that are paginated by day and that kind of thing. It doesn't happen often because we typically don't work outside of normal hours, but we have a studio in London. And so when the London studio is sometimes working on it, or even sometimes in San Francisco when they're working on it, the specs fail for them. And if they don't know that that's a known issue and it's the same failures every single time it happens, those people can waste time trying to say, oh, did I do this? Right. But they're going to be the same set of failures every time it hurts. And we need we need to fix the issue. But until we do, 
identifying that this is a, a common failure. It occurs around this time every day is something that like that that could help people. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we easily see the case where, you know, this test doesn't get changed, but it only passes a third of the time, right? People should mm-hmm. know about those things. Mm-hmm. And just the the days that you spend pressing retry, retry, you know, and, and the point we, we've done some work just looking at other orgs and stuff like that and seeing people say, yeah, we know that's broken. We just hit retry and get on with our day. I mean, that's right. when you get to the point where you expect your build to fail, right? Uh, that's a really bad place to be. And it really has a drag effect on the organization. But being able to surface that in some way, being able to talk to our customers about that. I mean, I do it personally, but also through the product, right? In a way that that really helps them focus on solving the problems that are impacting them and ignoring the ones that aren't, right? Because the other other issue is you get so focused on getting something to 100% when 99.5 might be right. You know, like if Mm -hmm. if it's going to take me a year to make this test perfect, that seems like a problem. Although maybe I should think about the design of the software versus yeah. changing the test over and over and over again, right? But really just exposing those things, that's that's really exciting to me, exciting to us, but exciting to me personally. I mean, it's, it's cool to be in this space, to be at the center of so much of this ecosystem and to be a software developer at heart, right? To really kind of love the craft of what we do and care, care about teams being successful and delivering effectively and, and delivering the value that they're trying to deliver to their customers. That's great. Thank you for joining me. I really appreciate your time and all the insight that you were able to share with us. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was really fun chatting with you. Rob, if um, people want to get in touch with you or um, follow along with you, where's the best place for them to do that? Find me on Twitter at Zub, Z-0-0-B. That's probably the best place if you want to find me. Cool. You can subscribe to the show and find notes for this episode at giantrobots.fm. If you have questions or comments, email us at hosts at giantrobots.fm. You can find me on Twitter at cpytel. This podcast is brought to you by ThoughtBot and produced and edited by Tom Mavarsky. Thanks for listening. See you next time. This podcast was brought to you by ThoughtBot. We are experienced designers and developers who turn your idea into the right product. With local studios in Boston, San Francisco, New York, London, Austin, and Raleigh, Let's build something great together.